What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision-making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to Sensorina.com to check it all out. All right, today on the podcast, we're happy to bring on Dave Starman. Dave has been around. Uh, if you are a hockey fan, you're probably familiar with Dave's work. I know me personally and Greg, we already talked about this, so I'm sure you're in the same boat. Uh, catch him on TV, watching college hockey games, world junior games. He's currently a scout for NHL Seattle. He's been a scout in the Maple Leafs and Canadians organization. He coaches youth hockey at the Tier 1 level. Dave is heavily invest in the game of hockey and he he's uh got had some experience with usa hockey too so really pleased to bring on dave today we had a wide-ranging and super fun conversation greg what was your favorite part oh i I just love how he is so open to changing his mind and he has clearly through the years and just whatever's best for the kids and what's best for the game uh he's all putting his weight behind that and continuing to grow this great sport that we all love so I, i really enjoyed how concise he is obviously his on-air personality shines straight through. So this was a ton of fun for me. What about you? Yeah, that's well said. I really liked uh, his explanation of what the modern defenseman is. I thought that he gave a really interesting answer to that. So stay tuned for that. And also he got me super excited and sad at the same time that I couldn't go to the level five USA hockey coaching uh, seminar this year because of COVID. So bummed about that. And it's funny because, uh, he really made me stop and take for granted how much of an impact, especially in the last couple of years, USA hockey, what, what great work they've done um, for players and coaches alike. So that was really inspiring. Oh, that's phenomenal. Well said. What, without further ado, let's get down to the interview with Dave. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Excited to have you on. How are you this evening? Oh, doing great. It's, uh, it's always a good time to talk hockey. That's for darn sure. Absolutely. So uh, just for, I feel like everyone knows you by now, just how much you're on television and how great of a presence you are for USA Hockey, but uh, maybe give us a little background, uh, maybe your story, how you got involved, um, now your passions and, and the things that you're really focusing on. Uh, you know, it's funny, as long as I can remember, I've played the game and, and been involved in the game. It's an awesome game. And I, I remember starting as a kid and I think I started as a forward and I, I wound up being a goalie because of my asthma. I couldn't skate hard. And, you know, that was back in the era where you became a goalie for one of a couple of reasons, either a, you didn't have skates. So you were the goalie in street hockey, B you didn't skate very well or C you're an asthmatic. And I remember reading one of Stan Fischler's books about how Jacques Plante became a goalie because of his asthma. So Jacques Plante kind of became my early goaltending hero uh, kind of because of that. And, and then it, it just sort of took its course, you know, through through youth hockey, through college. And, and I mean, I was okay. I, I'm good enough to admit that I'm okay as, as a goalie. And, but, you know, then it turned to scouting and coaching and broadcasting. And, 
you know, one of those people who will openly admit that it was a series of right place at the right time and, and some lucky breaks and some people I knew that opened doors for me that allowed me to, to try to find some of the success that I've been having. But it's been, it's been great. I've been able to coach for 35 years now between youth and pro. Uh, I've been an NHL scout for 11. I've been on air for close to 20 uh, 12 years with the World Juniors, which has been unbelievable. 18 years on air college hockey. Uh, I have some NHL on air experience as well. And, you know, during the 90s with, you know, Islanders Radio and, and WFAN here in New York. So it's been a, it's really been a very unique and enchanted ride through the coaching side of it, the media side of it, the scouting side of it. And I couldn't imagine doing anything else. That's amazing. And when I think of you, I think of college hockey and, and world juniors. I'm just curious how in the world you find time to scout for an NHL team, Seattle, for our listeners who may or may not know, and, and also, you know, handle all the duties that come along with television. What's that like? I'll tell you what, it's been, uh, it's been a crash course in time management, which I'm glad that I've been able to pass on to my kids. I've got a sophomore at the University of Massachusetts and a and a 10th grader. And, and, you know, I think they have seen both between myself, you know, and my wife, Shireen, who's on air with us. She's our ringside reporter on CBS and has probably had a longer on air career than mine. And, and her three Emmys, we always joke around. She's, she's got the hardware. So it's been, it's been a great way to, to segment your life. And it's been a great way to do other things. I mean, I work in our family business as well. So that takes up some time and, you know, there is the scouting, there is the broadcast side of it. There is the coaching side of it, whether it be coaching symposiums or, you know, a lot of the youth hockey teams that I'm working with now or clinics or whatever the case is. And you, you know what it is? It's when, when it becomes a labor of love, you find time to do it. I mean, I'm lucky enough to, to get paid for it. But, I mean, when it's still a labor of love. Jack Parker always said, find something you love to do and do it, and you'll never feel like you're, you're getting paid for it. it. It becomes a secondary part of it. But it's, it's, been a, it's been an adjustment every year. Each year you have to do something different. Last year with Seattle – was, was really unique because I moved to the pro side as opposed to the amateur side. So I was based mostly here in New York and, and my two coverage teams, main coverage teams were the Islanders and the Rangers. So it, there was no traveling involved with that, whether it be just to the garden or literally for me up the street to the Nassau Coliseum. It was a great run last year with Seattle. Like, I am not quite sure what scouting brings this year in terms of where I'll be or what I'll be doing, but it's, it's just they all blend together. Because when you scout a game, Tom Curver said this the best. Now the assistant GM in Minnesota, he said this the best. He goes, the scouts are the one group of people in a game where they can walk out of there and know that they watched every play. And you can kind of do that on air too. I mean, obviously we're watching every play also, but you know, there are times you get distracted, producer might be in your ear, you might be looking for a replay, you might be screening something else and you might miss something quick. When you're scouting a game, you literally watch every play and it's a great way to learn the game. And I find my scouting leads to me being more effective as a coach. My coaching leads me to be more effective as a scout. Uh, you tie in the prep work with the broadcast side of it, and everything just kind of glides together. That's wonderful. And you bring up a good point of, like, how you watch the game. Is, is there a way that you analyze or break down, or what's your preferred style? Because I know everyone tries to watch the game a little bit different. I try to absolutely watch the puck maybe 5% of the time and watch away from it what's going on at the bench, how our body language is looking, things like that. I'm curious how, how you go about it. I think it's a great question, and I think there are unlimited ways that you can watch a game, just depending on how you want to watch the game that night. And I think your point of watching away from the puck is a great way for young players to really learn the game. And, 
you know, when I was growing up in New York, I mean, we had coaches who cared, but I can't tell you we had coaches that were, you know, incredible hockey people. I, I think the New York City area was learning and growing the game through the 70s and the 80s. And, and again, you, you'd have a lot of coaches that were coming back with high playing experience where, you know, they could bring back some of these high-level things. So a lot of us that grew up watching the game, we learned the game by watching the game. And you really learned how to watch. And it's I think watching a game and learning how to watch a game is an art form that's kind of gotten lost a little bit. So it's good that, you know, some of the older guys like myself can remind the kids, you go to a game, you go to a live game, don't just watch the game for the sake of being a fan of watching the game. That's fun. But if you want to get a real big bang for your buck, sit in a corner a little bit higher so that the game comes at you north-south so you can really start to see lanes develop. You can start to see angles develop, how defensemen can – how defensemen gap, how defensemen angle, when they turn, how they pivot. There are so many different things that you can watch by sitting up in a corner and just watching a little bit away from the puck and watching what your position does on the ice. If you're a left wing, watch the left wingers. Watch face-offs closely, not necessarily where the puck goes right away, but how the guy who plays your position reacts to where the different stimuli are, are on the ice. So that's one way to watch it. When I'm scouting a game, it, it really depends on what I'm looking for. I mean, if I might be looking at two players, so all I might do is just watch those two guys. There are other games I go to where I might be just watching a, a general consensus to get a vibe on a team to see whether or not there are guys on that team that I'm really looking for. So I think there's a million different ways you can do it, but each game, I do think that if you're watching the game to pick something up, figure out what you want to look for before the game starts because that gives you an end goal by the time the game's over. Yeah, for sure. And, and trust me, I feel old too because when I, I coach Bantams and, and we talk all the time about going home and watching a game and our kids are like, going home and watch a game, I'm playing video games. So I, <laughs> That's right. I, I hear you. Um, so you brought it up. There's been quite a bit of changes just in the way that the game is coached, the way that it's taught. Maybe something that you've noticed or something that sticks out uh, you know, from day one from when you started coaching to today. Like, What's something that's just like dramatically different? I, I will say this. I am really proud that I've continued to evolve as a coach. And I think that there are a lot of players that stop playing and some even at high levels that stop playing, start coaching, and they start coaching the way that their last team was coached or they start coaching the way that their last amateur team was coached. And that could be 15 years ago. And the game and the way it's coached 15 years ago to the way it's coached now it's not even close, especially at the youth level. And this is where I give USA Hockey a lot of credit. I mean, that the American development model, which really launched about a decade or so ago, but, you know, had some inklings when Louis Vero was at USA Hockey in the 70s and, and started to develop some ideas on, on how to do player development. Uh, this thing has just been a revolution and an evolution tied together. And the way that we teach the game now with the emphasis on skill development, with the emphasis on – on not necessarily taking 12 and 13 year old teams and turning them into robots and, and just going system, system, system with the, with the lack of emphasis on wins and losses being the be all and end all. And the fact that the ego of the coach should be how many of his players that they move on to the next level, as opposed to whether or not they win the 13 U single A silver sticks championship. I mean, there's a lot going on there. And I do think that the best part of our coaching body nationally is the fact that we're teaching the game now. But we've also figured out different ways to teach it. So you were starting to do some stuff where there's a lot more small area games. There's a lot more trial and error. There's a lot more creating chaos for the players on the ice for them to learn from. Trial and error tends to lead to trial and success. And I think that, A, 
we're more qualified than ever to administrate and teach the game. Number two is I think there is more reference material out there for coaches to find, whether it's online clinics, whether it's symposiums, or whether it's reference material that they can pick up online. And the combination of all that makes what we did, like I said, even 10, 15 years ago, uh, almost obsolete now. And I think the emphasis right now is more on player development and creating a bigger pool of depth for older players to to play college hockey, to play in the USHL, to play in the North American League than there's ever been. That's really well said. I, I think that is exactly where it's going. And I think you've had a large portion of that. And it's amazing how much more these players have skill and starting to think the game and have that ability. So uh, it's amazing. And I, and I think you're, you're spot on with the coaches are so much better than they used to be. Um, even just in the few years that uh, I've been around in Ohio, like seeing the, how Columbus has changed from a market that didn't have any coaches to the NHL guys are getting involved. The coaching clinics with USA hockey have, have made that program better and better and better. And they're starting to compete with teams up in Cleveland have historically just run the tables and they're starting to beat them. So, uh, it's awesome to see. Um, well, I mean, what are the, the keys that you think, though, within that curriculum of teaching coaches? Do we still need to go or still need to hit that next pier on? Uh, that's a good question. By the way, in Columbus, uh, an old friend of mine who used to be an assistant coach at Miami University, Nick Petraglia, is now there with the AAA Blue Jackets, and he is going to bring a world of great experience and abilities to an already good program. I am thrilled that Nick is there. I think he's going to make a really nice impact. And and you're right, Columbus youth hockey, especially with a guy like John Hafferman there too at the Columbus Ice Hockey Club, uh, that is a city that is in great shape uh, regarding its youth hockey. But when it, when it comes to what can we do next, I really think the key for us is just to continue to look at different ways that we can get through to players. And the one thing that I've brought up in a lot of clinics and I brought up with a lot of people, I have two sisters that are teachers. So there are times where I may talk to my sisters to say, hey, listen, you know, you teach fourth grade or you teach second grade. How do you teach this age group? Like, how do they learn? What are the best ways for me to get through to these age groups when I'm working with these age groups? And I, and I think it's a constant evolution of learning the age group that you're coaching at. You know, we've got that old saying in USA Hockey, an 18-year-old, or sorry, an 8-year-old is not half a 16-year-old, or a 12-year-old is not two-thirds of a 16-year-old. 12-year-old is 12 years old, and their brains and their bodies and their emotional pitch is different than what it's going to be the following year. So you've got to really drill down on the individual group, and we need to make sure that we continue the path of age-appropriate practices. If we start to get away from that, and we go back to the old style again. That's where we're going to lose a lot of players. And I, I know so many people railed against us taking checking out of 12U. I thought it was a great idea because now these kids are not worried about getting concussed. You're not worried about the six-foot peewee terrorizing the five-foot peewee and getting away with it. Now, you know, that six-foot peewee is not going to learn how to play the game too. So I think by going age-appropriate and by – by making sure that our emphasis continues to be on skill development, we're just creating this bigger depth pool. And you know where it really shows up is in a select 15, 16, and 17 camps that I've done both at the New York State level and at the national level as a coach because you can get a kid in there, a six-foot, 16-year-old, who is just as skilled, just as quick, and just as coordinated as the five-foot, three, 16-year-old. And, and we've always seen over the years how the smaller players had to develop skill first because they didn't have the size to use as a weapon. Well, now these bigger guys, not only are they using their size as a weapon, but that combination of size and skill, I mean, it's, it's Kevin Hayes at a younger age group, and the more of that we continue to do, the better. So I do think the focus needs to be continuing 
on coaches educating themselves on how to reach their age group, coaches continuing on what the proper protocols are for practicing at that age group, and making sure that all of our practices stay age appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get. I want to keep on the age specific thing, but I got to stop real quick because I'm in Columbus, Dave. And uh, so Nick Petraglia, I met him maybe 15 years ago for the first time when I was shooting at a Mitch Corn camp, <laughs> and Nick was one of the counselors. This was back in Cincinnati, and Nick's a great guy, and and like you said, a great hire for the city of Columbus and for the AAA program. That's going to be a downstream great hire if it's not already. And then John is finally the local celebrity that he Good. probably already, you know, he, he wasn't like a, in, in the, like the very local circle here, but like all the attention that he's gotten well-deserved for the, the Willie O'Ree nomination couldn't have gone to a better guy. So yeah, I just wanted to pause on that real quick. Oh, John um, and I had a chance to be together for a couple of summers at the Minnesota hockey camps in Brainerd, where he did that incredible job of bringing so many kids from Columbus up there for a week to get an experience of, you know, what a real good hockey environment is like. And that, ex that environment up in Brainerd uh, with the Grillo family was, was unbelievable while, while it lasted. And, you know, by the way, an unknown thing is John is a tremendous tennis player. So if you, if, if you do really? hit the ball a bit and you want to get a real good tennis match in, John is a tremendous tennis player. That's good to know. Good to know. <laughs> Um, okay, so back to the age-specific stuff. I'm curious what age you think is appropriate or maybe more specifically inappropriate to use video in your, in your coaching. That's funny because I've been sitting here editing clips all day and for, for my 15U AAA team and you know, just, just we're, you know, drilling down on certain things for individual kids and, and groups. And uh, I think you can use video at any age. I just think you got to be careful with it. You, there is no way you could sit there with a 10U team and do a 30-minute video session like I've seen some coaches do. I mean, pros don't do that. So when it comes to age-appropriate and video, you can use video at any age group to get some points across, but you got to remember, like, we're kind of in the ADD generation. And a coach at USA Hockey joked with me once, you know, the, the age of the kid is about how many words that they're going to pick up before they start disengaging mentally. So that 10-year-old kid, you got 10 words. Before, before they start thinking about something else. I think it's the same thing on video. I mean, it's, it's, if you want to get your 10U group in there and show them two clips on something that you want to try to do, and it could be clips of the drill you're going to do in practice. It could be a clip of them at practice. It could be a clip of an NHL game where you, you might have just been working on passing the puck, and maybe you find a couple of real great clips of guys passing the puck with proper technique and receiving with proper technique. And some guys are real good with – you know, grabbing clips and slowing them down and that kind of thing. And so I do think that used the right way and used quickly. You can start with video at a very younger age because the beauty of video is it doesn't lie. I mean, if you show a kid a clip and tell him that he's not moving his feet enough to justify the role that he's trying to play or the fact that he wants to get on the power play, you know, the tape's not going to lie to him. And I think that's great reinforcement for the teaching lessons that you're going to want to bring up. The question becomes, what video do you use? Do you use video of your team? Do you use video of NHL teams? I personally like to use video of the NCAA teams and some USHL teams that I can pull in because I think our players react to it a little bit better because let's be honest about it. There is not a 15U in the country that is going to do what Connor McDavid's doing in a game. It's just not going to happen. So I think if we show a 15U kid a really good college player or we show a 15U kid a really good USHL or a North American League player, that's the next level that they're aiming at. That's the realistic, immediate goal that's in front of them. Show them players at that level because they'll get a real idea of what the culture of that style of game is. 
the NHL game to me is a different animal. And sometimes you show them clips of NHL guys who are so incredibly good at what they do, it could intimidate some players in trying to do what you're asking them to do because they're going to look at that and say, there is no way that I can ever do that that well. It's the same thing with drills. Like you see all these guys doing these amazing drills and it has 10 different elements to it. And the kids can remember maybe the first three and they're forgetting the other seven. And then they don't know what the little details are that they need to get out of that drill. So that's well said. The other part of it is this. I I do think that when it comes to, when it comes to your video sessions, and we talked about the brevity of it, you know, you could also be entertaining. Like it doesn't just have to be hockey. You, I mean, you could bring your guys in and, you might want to show them two or three clips, but if you could, this is a great lesson I learned from, believe it, I learned it from Roger Nielsen way back when. If you could throw a funny clip in there to set up your video, do it, especially if it's timely to what you're talking about. I did a goaltending presentation recently, and, and it was a goaltending presentation on working with play, uh, coaches that weren't goalies on how to better work with their goaltenders so that they lose their fear of, of being the goalie coach. And, you know, obviously – we all know goaltending. What is goaltending? Everything from goaltending comes out of the stance, right? So there's a clip in the movie, My Fellow Americans, where there are three guys standing at a urinal, and one guy is talking to the other guy and, and turns to him and he says, you know, nice stance, that's important. And I use it in every goaltending thing I do because it kind of sets the mood in a, in a, in a funny way. It's a great clip. And, but I think you can, you can reach your players with your message, potentially without ever using a hockey clip. Clips from movies are great, and clips from TV shows are great. If they can be funny, if they can make a point, even if they're serious, I, I do think there are different ways to do video other than just showing kind of the nuts and bolts of what the game is. Absolutely, and that's that's great that you're talking about goaltending. My brother's a goalie, so I, I kind of got to see the behind the scenes world of his coaches. Even at the AAA level, would be like just stop the puck. They had no idea. They're completely intimidated, um, and that's great because I've been to some of the USA Hockey sessions where they've gone into goaltending everything from where the pads go how they interlock with the post everything's like that and it's, it's amazing to see the difference that that has but um even with the goalie iq where that comes from is there something that uh goalies need to really focus on for their iq and being able to have that hockey sense and i think that uh there's a higher percentage of goalies in coaching than players and especially at the higher levels i'm curious your Maybe your theory on why so many great goalies have turned into good coaches. Oh, it's funny. Goalie IQ, there's a contradiction in terms, right? Because everybody talks about how much, you know, how low your IQ has to be to want to be a goalie. But I think that goalie IQ is important. There is hockey sense to play in goal. Like I was talking to my goalies the other day, my 15 years about goalie gaps. And, you know, they looked at me a little bit strange. And I'm like, hey, listen, defensemen have to tighten their gaps. I said, you as a goalie, there are goalie gaps you've got to be aware of. And, what depth are you going to play at? And we, you know, we did a great video on, you know, how to play at different depths. And there's A, B, C, and D. And A is, you know, way out. And D is is deep in the net. And you, know, you got a couple levels in between. And the level of depth you play at is, you know, dependent on where the puck is and maybe your size. And, you know, a guy who's six foot three, you can sit a little bit tighter to the goal line because pucks are going to find you. You know, when you're five foot eight, you and I was 5'10", I mean, when you're 5'10", you got to be out there a little bit, and you got to go find the puck. So what depth do you play at is very dependent, again, on age appropriate uh, in terms of your training. But, you know, how do you use your stick? Pass outs from behind the net. Uh, goalies don't stop a lot of pass outs from behind the net anymore. And in my era, you know, that was a big thing of what we used to do. I know hugging the post has become a little different because goalies go down the RHV a lot, and they sit there on the post, and, and their sticks get very inactive when passes come close to the net 
and they don't knock them away anymore. I think a big part of goalie IQ is knowing what you're responsible for because you can lessen the demand on yourself in terms of that great save you've got to make if you have an active stick and you know how to use it. So I, I absolutely think that the more we work with our goalies, not only on their skill set, but the more we teach them the game in and around the crease, the weapons that they have at their disposal, namely their gloves and their stick, the, the more stuff that we do with them in terms of putting them in game situations and teaching them the nuances of the game like we would with a forward and a defenseman, the better core goalies that we're going to continue to develop. And, hey, listen, you guys both know as well as I do, what's the, what's the way to become a great coach? We call it the gag theory. Get a great goalie. Huh. And not all of them come ready-made. you got to work with them, and that's a big part of it, the hockey IQ component. Yeah. Absolutely. Real quick, do you work with just goalies? Or I think I read somewhere that you also work with the defensemen on, on the youth side. Here's the funniest thing. I, I mean, I'm a goalie guy. I've cranked out more defensemen to the next level than I have goalies. I, I don't know what the hell that says about my goaltending ability, but <laughs> but, I, but I, I've always felt defensemen probably made me a better goalie, so maybe I owed him something coming back. But I, I'm a big believer that you can work with any position, and you need to. If you weren't a goalie, you've got to learn how to work with your goalies. If you were a goalie, you've got to learn how to work with the other players. And that ties into the to the question you asked before about why so many goalies become coaches and uh, look how many goalies become analysts on TV. I mean, we, we've got the best view of the ice of anybody. It's like being a catcher. I mean, you're the only person who sees the whole field as a catcher. As a goalie, you are the only person that sees the entire ice surface. And if you're the backup goalie, boy, do you have a great view of the game because you have nothing else to do other than watch it just for the sake of watching it. So whether you're playing it or you're the backup that night, nobody gets a better perspective of the game than you do because you can zone in on different ways. So that's why I think goaltenders really understand the game a lot better than Sometimes people give them credit for it just because of, of the view that they have, the depth perception they have. And it, and it goes back to what I said about scouting. You know, it goes up, sit in the corner so you can watch things develop. When you're playing goal, you've got a perfect place to watch things develop. And I do think it gives you a great basis. If you want to coach, you want to scout, you want to go on air, it really gives you a terrific ability to learn the game, the nuances of the game, and the spacing of the game. Yeah, makes total sense to me. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit. I've got a question for you about a cliche that we hear all the time on TV about modern defensemen. Everybody wants a modern defenseman. Coach a modern defenseman. Scouts want to see modern defensemen. What, I guess what does it mean to you, and how do you go about teaching players to become the quote-unquote modern-day defenseman? Oh, that's a, that's a great question, and it's a term I use with, with my guys all the time. And, you know, I have a 2005 birth year son who's on our team who, who I have done a lot of work with becoming the modern defenseman and I, I can't tell you I mean last year you know coaching with the group that I coach with I coached with two ex-NHL guys and it was a constant discussion of of what I wanted our defenseman to do because when it came to practice development I handled our D and you know myself and our other assistant I, I will tell you straight up we had a very different view on what we wanted our defenseman to do and I wanted those guys in the offensive zone surfing up like crazy and tightening gaps I mean let's be honest about it the gap that you leave the, the offensive zone with going to be the same gap you're going to have when you hit the defensive blue line my feeling is this if you kill the play before the play ever crosses center ice is that a good thing or a bad thing I mean it's a great thing I see no reason that you need to let a play come all the way into your own end if you could kill it early so I want the modern defenseman to me is a mobile defenseman who skates really well forwards and backwards and obviously he's got all the pivoting skill and but I mean you need good stick skills you need good vision you, you need to be able to jump up in plays and and play an offensive style of game but you also need to learn what I call hockey by the numbers, not hockey by the letters. And hockey by the numbers to me is understanding what your role is pursuant to what number you are in the alignment. So let's say F1 has got the puck and he's going wide. So that's number one. 
let's say you get a guy who's driving the net. That's the second guy. So you know the role of the second player. You are the defenseman. You made the outlet pass. You joined. So you're the third guy now. Are you the defenseman? Are you F3? You're number three in the alignment. So you better know the role of what the third guy has to do, both on the offensive side and then if the puck turns over, on the back check. Because if that puck turns over quick and now you're in a back checking role, you may be number three. So you're the first forward back technically. You're not a defenseman anymore. You better know the role of what that third guy back has to do because you're going to be looking and seeing two of your teammates who are handling the rush while fronting up. So that to me is the modern defenseman. Where can you play on the ice? Do you know the roles of everybody that's involved? Can you get involved offensively? Can you become part of the five as opposed to observing the front three? I just think that's a a small, simple way of of doing it. But I, I do think the modern defenseman is one that's got skill, that's got speed, that can contribute to the offense and also defend hard, make plays and move pucks. That's really well said. And that takes, that takes some brain power. You have to actually know what's going on out there. Um, is there a way that you go about developing that hockey IQ in your players? Um, I'm a big fan of, of starting with looking around and every drill has an element of creating ice awareness, but beyond that and maybe how you go about using video or how you develop and what you focus on and stress during your, your practices. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I'll tell you what, my, my USA Hockey master's thesis was on transition from offense to defense and defensive zone play. It's always been a part of the game that, that I've been very intrigued with and obviously felt comfortable with, being that I spent my life in the defensive zone. So the, and Craig Ramsey, former Buffalo Sabres player, longtime NHL coach, uh, Craig Ramsey was the first person who really turned me on to what the concepts were of how to properly defend, especially on the back check. And, you know, Craig was always a little ahead of his time when it came to how to play defense, whether it be with angles or coming back or you know, back checking and that kind of thing. And, and he did a couple of great presentations at Roger Nielsen's coaching clinics back when I was a young coach. And this goes back into the nineties and actually maybe even the late eighties. And I, I read a ton about him. I used to talk to him at the clinics about it and, and read up on a lot of his stuff and listen to watch his video. And I still have all those presentations from, now 30 years ago and you know what a lot of it still applies and I try to teach my players a lot of what we just talked about and that is what is the role of everybody on the ice when it comes to the five-man unit and once we start transitioning to defense what's everybody's role if you're the strong side defenseman what's your role if you're the weak side defenseman what's your role now that has changed a lot in 30 years you're like you watch a guy like Charlie McAvoy play Charlie McAvoy is the weak side defenseman he's got one thought on his mind and that is skate forward Skate with his man. If the puck gets dumped in, you're skating forwards already. Go get it quick. And if you are defending and a pass comes towards your check, you've already got great stick position on the guy because you're skating stride for stride with him, and you can lean on him as opposed to having to front him, turn, pivot, and make a play that way, part of the modern defenseman, right? So that's part of it. If you're the third guy back, you know that you're looking for trailers. You're looking behind you both ways, and and you're coming hard down to stay with your check, and you're going to take your check all the way to the net. One of the key things that we always teach in this component of that transition to defense is defensive zone coverage doesn't start until the back check is over. So if that rush is still going, you are still in a transition. You are still in a back check mode. Once the first shot to the net happens and then maybe the scramble or the reset for the team to go into offensive zone play starts, then you get into defensive zone coverage, and that's where you can start to switch some responsibilities. So maybe that defenseman who got trapped and comes back he can pull a switch with the guy who covered him or her, and then can you can establish defensive zone play. But we do it a lot where guys get out of position, a lot of these like, you know, high ride time up the wall if their check goes up the wall. So it's just a constant matter of repetition, repetition, repetition in practice. 
enforcement with video to show them some of the things that you're trying to angle. And I also think is when you put them into unstructured five-on-five scrimmage play inside their own zone and you play it as a controlled scrimmage, A, they're going to figure some stuff out. B, it's a wonderful opportunity for you to blow the whistle, tell everybody to stop, have everybody look around, and you ask your D, okay, are you in a good spot? Are you in a bad spot? What are you anticipating? What's coming next? Your players, if they can give you more answers than you're giving them, you know you have really made a dent in developing hockey IQ. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I was down at uh, Daryl Belfry's camp last summer, and Charlie was one, McAvoy was one of the players there. And I knew he was good. He blew my mind. Like, he's a fantastic player. And that Bruins team is going to be something, even if they lose, you know, some guys to free agency or whatever, they'll be, they'll be good to go. Uh, Charlie's, uh, a, Charlie's a top-pairing cornerstone defenseman for the next decade. I mean, that was, that was a great pick by Boston. There are a lot of good defensemen in that first round that went, and I am not ashamed to say that, if, you know, if I had the opportunity to pick Charlie Mack, uh, I would have picked him also. I mean, my goodness, what a player. He's from my hometown. So, this, so I mean, I've known him and the family a long time, and, uh, and this is not bias. This is just Charlie's real good. I mean, I've, I've had a great chance to – to see Sergachev because I was with Montreal when we drafted him, and I think he's got some special components to his game, and I he's growing on me more and more the further the Tampa has gone in the playoffs. But but gosh, do I like Charlie? I'll tell you what, the old man was a heck of a player too. Oh yeah. So you can see, and and his sister's great also. You can see where the, there's some great hockey genes in the McAvoy family, no question. I've heard many people say that that family is half the reason why he's the player he is because they just understand the game. They're, they're not being overly pushy. So that, that kind of goes to my next question is, you know, how can parents help in that development process and, you know, not put their kids in bad positions to, to succeed? That, that question could go a lot of different ways, and, and I'll attack it as the simplest, and I'll, I'll try to use some of my experiences to answer that because I've seen some parents who did a great job, and, and I've seen some parents who were so overbearing, they literally drove their kids out of the game. And uh, one parent that I like to think of, I had a kid when I was coaching the New York Bobcats junior team uh, back in the early 2000s. We had a defenseman. His name was Tim Phil and Jerry. And Tim was a 15-year-old who made our team. We were playing in the Met League at the time, junior B. And Timmy is a 15-year-old, made our team, and, and wound up, I think, being the defenseman of the year in the league. His dad, Ken, was one of the most incredible hockey parents I had ever dealt with. And uh, Kenny didn't push Timmy, but Kenny kind of convinced Tim that he was going to make of his career, what he was going to make of it, and his uh, his ownership of his career was going to be a big factor. And and the dad Ken obviously got him to the rink on time and provided for him for what he needed. But you know when Timmy got on the ice, it was all about Tim. And and the dad was like, I don't want any favors. I don't let him earn his ice time. And 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 he was great. And you know he took a, a backseat role to to Tim's career. But I I think that's where a lot of parents sometimes get off track is, is they try to own the career of their kid as opposed to letting the career own it. And I I know we've talked a lot about helicopter parents and, and, and that kind of thing. And and I do see a lot of that, but at some point, I think the players got to decide how much they want it. And uh, you've all heard of Todd Krieger, who I believe now is the assistant coach in Grand Rapids. Todd played at the university of Connecticut. was a long time NHLer and, He's got two kids that are pretty good players, uh, both defensemen at Michigan State. And uh, the one thing that he said to me was, he goes, I told my kids it was up to them to make of it what they were going to make of it. Like, I, they were getting no favors from me. I didn't baby them. I was honest with them. And it was up to them. And, and those two kids turned out to be pretty good. So I think as a parent, you can have a discipline factor in terms of teaching your kid habit and routine and, and the important things and time management and the importance of school and hockey and off ice and and that kind of thing. But 
I do think the kid needs to want it, and they need to want to chase it for their own reasons as opposed to chasing it because you want them to chase it. And I do think that's where the, the disconnect between a lot of parents and a lot of players starts. The other side of it, a lot of parents don't know what they don't know. And I think that's where some of the mistakes come in. And I think the most important thing for, for guys like us that are in the game, that have lived it, been there, been through it, put players from the amateur side into the pro, have been on the pro side where we have plucked players out of amateur programs to, to play for us. We bring a lot to the table. And whether or not people have what my dad likes to call AOL, the art of listening, whether or not parents have the ability to listen to some of the advice that's out there through the experiences of the people that went through it is a really important component for parents because they may know their kid better than we do, but we know the path better than they do. And I do think relying on us for, for sound advice because we care is an important part of the parents' development hockey-wise. Yeah, that's, that's super well said. And I think you're right. I mean, most, at the end of the day, most parents are, you know, they're doing the right things, but um, I think you're right. I got one more for you. I'm curious from a USA hockey standpoint, what can we, what can USA hockey as a, you know, as an institution, as a program do better or do more of than they are right now? That's a good question because that comes up a lot when a lot of guys that are sitting around that are USA hockey guys talk about all the time. And and the organization is so broad-based. I mean, you've got the people that are, that are working for it out of Colorado Springs and you've got this just incredible network of dedicated volunteers, or we like to call them the unpaid professionals, uh, guys that do so much work and gals that do so much work for USA hockey that we want to see this succeed. We're all in this together. And I think one of the best things that, that has come through is the last 12 years of the ADM. I do think the, the amount of reference material that USA hockey has put out online, whether on its YouTube channel, whether or not it's, in PDFs, whether or not it's the sharing of a lot of their online seminars, the creation of the USA Goaltending Development Program, uh, which is www.usahockeygoaltending.com. That's a site that those of us in Goalie Nation are extremely proud of. And, and, and we love the fact that we really made a big inroad in the ADM program with the Goaltender Development Program, the Goalie Coach Development Program. If I'm USA Hockey, I want to continue the course of what's next. I want to be out in the forefront of what do we do next to make our game better. But we also have to make sure we look back before we look forward. And that's what some of the coaches and chiefs at the district levels are doing a really good job of, whether whether it's Chuck Gridley in New York and Paul Moran in Massachusetts and Larry Roca in New England and Ed Lichtenberger in the Mid-Atlantic. I mean, there's so many good – Flint Dunchak in the Northwest has done some unbelievable stuff. So I think we continue to modernize. I think the coaching education program continues to develop. For the first time in a long time, the coaching education program and the ADM departments are now really working in cohesion with each other to do the, do a lot of the clinics and put out more of the reference material. So I think that one thing that has happened is a lot of the different factions of USA hockey, whether paid or volunteer, whether CEP or ADM, whether the national team program or the national office, whatever the case is, I think you're seeing a lot more synergy right now because everybody's somewhat on the same page because the path has been so cleared. Now the question is where do we take it as a governing body from here forward? And part of it is just continuing to preach a, what a great game we have. B, the amount of ways that we have to teach it. And C, just making sure that we stick to the goals that we have out there regarding our age-appropriate development. That's wonderful. I've been really impressed with the stuff that USA Hockey has been coming out with lately. Um, I remember when I first got in it, it was, it was kind of shaky. But now that you've got the app, uh, I've 
drawn up many practice plans on those uh, the little rink there and shared them with coaches. So it's been wonderful. So I want to thank all, all USA hockey listeners that may be out there doing great work. So for sure. Uh, let me interrupt. Bummed. Let me uh, break in on the app for one quick second. Uh, Cameron Eckmeyer is is one of the video guys there, and Ken Martell has been a uh, a real proponent of the app too. I mean, th- those two guys are powerhouses when it comes to, to a lot of the video content that you're seeing. And, and, and I think that that mobile app, anybody who's watching this now, parent, player, coach, what a team administrator, whatever the mobile app is, is a no brainer. You need to have this thing on your phone. And once you put it on your phone, it transfers right to your tablet. And then I think there's a small fee you can pay where you get access to every USA hockey instructional video on ice and off ice, plus all the lesson plans, plus all the off ice lesson plans, everything. This thing is, it might be the best thing that USA hockey has done. And I've watched it continue to evolve from just this app where you can plan, where you can look at practice plans to an app where, as you just said, you can design practice. And, and, and that to me has been one of the great things for USA hockey. So if you're watching this and you don't have the app on your phone, Download the USA Hockey mobile app. Trust me, it is it's free, and it is so well worth it. You will find that you're using it no matter how you are connected to the game. It's wonderful. It's got a little bit of everything. It's got video, um, and, and, you know, if you're a hockey nerd like myself, you can pull up the rule book and go through that before bed and put yourself to sleep. It's, it's great. It's also got <laughs> age-specific modules, which I think are really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really Another good thing theory. USA Hockey's done is is the age appropriate modules. I, sure. I I do think that we're probably due to update some of them, but the information in those age appropriate modules is great. And I, I know some coaches have said that they don't really they don't really watch them. They just wait for the test and then try to get them right. But there's a lot of great stuff in there. And look, I've been doing this 35 years. I still watch those modules and I'll still pick something up that I might not have picked up the first time I watched them through. I may click on one video just to re reinforce something that is the thing uh, to tie up what you asked about what we could do better i think one of the things for coaches is the continuation of coaching education you, you cannot be set on what you already know because there's something new out there the game changes by the hour and there's there's more out there for you to find so i i know a lot of coaches who have done nothing in terms of their continuing coaching education for a decade you i you got to invest in yourself my my saying is this you can't do player development unless you're doing coaching development and it starts with you so I hold myself very accountable in that department, and I do think whether you're coaching Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3, whether you played 25 years in the NHL or you played 10 games in high school, the bottom line is continue your coaching education because that is only going to help you as a coach, but more importantly, it's going to help your players, and that's why we're in this. That's awesome. That is, that is well said. I'm, I'm curious maybe some innovative things that you're seeing out there and get you excited on the coaching side of it or uh, maybe some, some things that you've changed your mind on here recently. Oh, good question. The technology to me is, is the most fascinating part about it. And I've always been intrigued with the technology. So I've tried to keep up with it. I, I, I just, I have a good friend of mine, John Buchanan, who owns Pyramid Hockey. And, you know, John introduced me to Wondershare Filmora for, to do a lot of editing and, you know, show me a lot of the bells and whistles of it. And, and I've been doing it. I know a lot of people use, you know, Apple movie or iMovie or whatever it's called to, to, to edit some clips down. But I do think if you as a coach can, can start to learn the ability to do that, it's not that hard. And it's funny, everywhere I went, when I started at the pro level, I was the video coach. And back in my day, it was four or five VHSs patched together with cables and one TV and about 8 million tapes. And that was how we did video. And now it's, it's so much easier because all you need is your laptop, but you do have to learn the technology part of it. So I think, I think the technology component is a huge deal. And in terms of you know, things that we're doing now that maybe we wouldn't have done before, 
I do remember with certain teams where we get on the ice and we would do 45 minutes of flow. Some of it would be with resistance. Some of it would be just free flowing. I think the concept of transferable skills and the design of practice where we are emphasizing transferable skills in a competition-based model in practice, not a competition-based model schedule-wise, but just in practice, guys are competing and girls are competing. There is resistance. There is, there is pressure. There's limited time and space. I do think the more that we can put our players at every age group, introducing them, obviously age appropriately, but the more that we continue to put them in practice scenarios where they are in higher game-like reps, the better that these players are going to be. So I think that's a little bit different than, than maybe what we used to do when we used to go 45 minutes of flow and then maybe we'd scrimmage for, for 10, 15 minutes. I do think the competition level in practice has been something I've seen much, much more of in the last 10, 15 years. That's wonderful. I love SAGs. I think uh, the small area games are absolutely critical in driving home. I, I love the ones where you can have a, a theme and then put a constraint in. I play games cross-ice where you have to only score on a first touch, whether it be a tip, rebound, uh, one time or whatever. I think that gets the kids in that mind of how do I get open, things like that. So it, there, there's so much you can do off of it. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. And, that's, um, and, and, I, and you make a good point there because that's where the game becomes the teacher. Like, I think that's important. I, when I was with the Atlanta Knights and the Macon Whoopi, I was working with John Parrish Jr., who, who's got a strong background in psychology. And John always used to say to me, it takes 14 to 21 days consistently to build a habit. And if you continue to put your players into scenarios where they can build some of those habits through trial and error, uh, you're letting the game become the teacher. And the one thing he did say to me was, people will sometimes remember much better what they have figured out themselves than what they learned from somebody else. And we've got such a kinesthetic game that the more we run our players through, through these repetitions, the more we make them go out and find things to do. Like you just talked about finding open space. You play these three on three games with, and you keep changing the parameters of the game. Roger Grillo from our AGM, ADM staff is, is the master of the changing of the parameters of, of all these small area games. And, you know, the more you change the rules, you more to change the parameters, the more players have to look for different ways to get available, to get open. And then they start learning that they don't have to be open. Their stick has to be open. So they may be leaned on and they they may be in a tight spot, but as long as their stick is open and ready, they can receive a pass and they can do something with it. So uh, again, the, the, the small area games, the game itself can do a lot to teach the players how to play the game correctly. And I'm a huge proponent uh, of those small area games. I joked with our coaching staff the other night. I said, you know what? We should come up with six 10-minute small area games and a 60-minute practice. Keep changing the rules, you know, the six different games, and we'll change the teams a little bit. We'll keep some stats. And at the end, we'll figure out who the top three players of the games were between all six games. We'll figure out which team played the best. We'll keep the goalie stats too. I said, we – you know, that, that kind of a situation, you tell me, you find me 15-year-olds around the country where if you told them you're going to play six 10-minute small area games three times a week in practice, wouldn't sign up tomorrow to go play on the moon. I mean, they, they go anywhere to do that. I love that. I'm stealing that. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. And if ever my guys have a bad practice or pucks are, you know, not getting past that well, instead of getting them on the line, I love to just throw them in a small area game, get them competing, and suddenly their energy level rises and the intensity and their brains get switched on. So rather than skating them and doing the punishment, give them a little bit of fun has uh, gone a long way. And Greg, you just made a good point because think about it this way. Think about what you just said. If passes aren't clicking and things aren't connecting, I put them in a small area game. The percentage of, of passes completed are better in small areas or bigger areas, right? It's small. 
So all of a sudden, we're running a practice where you're expecting a guy to throw a pass from board to board, and it's not working, and the coach blows a gasket, breaks the stick, puts everybody in the goal line, starts bag skating everybody because they're not paying attention. You as the coach, you kind of set them up to fail. Now you throw them in a small area where the passes that they're making probably can't be more than 15 to 20 feet no matter what they're doing. Now you're going to find a higher success rate. So in a way, by punishing them, by taking them out of the big drill and putting them into a small area game where they really got to work harder, you're now setting them up for success because you're putting them in a situation where the game becomes more like the game you want them to play. And that is, like I like to say, it's like the West Coast offense. It's a series of dink and dunk short passes as you continue to move the puck up the ice. That's wonderful. Um, I only have one last question for you, and then we'll open up the floor. Um, what maybe some things that players can do off the ice, and, and not just so much hockey-wise, but things that translate to hockey that you learn off the ice or being around the team or coaches can help uh, that make those off-ice moments valuable for not just hockey, but way beyond in, in your entire life. Uh, I, I lo- I've got a co- college club program at the University of Akron. Uh, we have a life use session that we found extremely valuable where we bring in speakers, we talk on everything that you pretty much don't get in school. So I'm a financial advisor, so I'll talk on finances. Uh, yesterday, we brought in a guy who runs a business, a restaurant, and all they hire are ex-convicts getting out of jail and prison and getting them re uh, back into the system. And doing great work and it's one of the best dining experiences in Cleveland. So it's wonderful. I see that. I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, how that goes and, and the things that you may do. I think that one of the important things that you need to do with your players is impart to them that the game that they're playing and the things that you're doing to make them better as players and people are, it's a microcosm of the rest of their life and the skills that they're going to take from their team are skills that they're going to use as college students, as business people, as parents, whatever path that they take, the lessons that you learn from playing a team sport or even an individual sport are lessons that you're going to carry through the rest of your life. So I do think that's one part of it. Uh, Miami University used to have a team psychologist. His name was Don DePaulo, who's based out of Ann Arbor. And Don was great when he came down to Miami of organizing team activities. And one of them that I observed was he would put the players in a, in a circle. Uh, there's an inside circle and an outside circle and chairs would face each other. And he would throw out a topic and each pair of players facing each other would have to discuss that topic based on some of their personal experiences. Or the, the topic may be get to know the guy sitting across from you. And each guy got two and a half minutes to kind of tell what they're about and their background and what they like and what they don't like and what their goals are and that kind of thing. And, you know, then he might throw out a combination of, you know, you're playing on this team. What are the goals for you, for your team? And then they may talk about individual goals. They may talk about what are your interests in life and what do you want to be down the road and, and, but you keep rotating the circle. So you're never answering back-to-back questions with the same partner. So you do five rotations of this, and you've had five different sets of pairs all start interacting. Almost everybody has talked to somebody you know, on a much different level than they are, a much different person than they are. And all of a sudden, you can define what your team's going to be. You can define who some of your guys are. You'll learn about some of your teammates. I've done these activities with the when the old CCHA was around, and they used to have officials training camp, which my wife and I went to a few times. And we participated in a few of these. And, you know, there are some things about those guys that I still know now that you know, I can tell stories about them on air that they love and their kids love hearing it. I think getting to know people is huge. And that's an important part of what your off-ice thing is. So tell the kids, put the phones away, talk to each other, get to know your teammates, get to know what makes them click. Because if you're going to go to battle with these 
with these guys or girls that you're playing with, you want to know, A, why you want to stick up for this person, and B, what makes them tick so that you can maybe facilitate them having a better experience. Absolutely love that. I think it's totally valuable. Um, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a few connections down that Miami program, um, and everything seems to be great that comes out of there, uh, building the brotherhood and how they did that and the story. Um, that pretty much led to them finally clicking to the brotherhood as, as tragic as it was, has, has led to so many positives. It, it's been unbelievable. Yep. That, this has been awesome. I think we could keep going, but uh, let's be reasonable for everyone here. But uh, at, at the end of every episode, we love to give two minutes to talk about anything that you're passionate about or, or want to talk about. The floor is all yours. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, when you, when you look at, uh, when you look at the game, I think the the game is in a really good place right now. I it's it's amazing to see how many players are playing and really enjoying it. I, I know retention rates can fluctuate and and the economy has a part to do with it. And right now, I don't have to talk about what we're going through. Everybody knows what we're going through. It affects every family differently. And unfortunately, the game has been an outlet for so many of us. We're going to the rink in masks now. We're we're going to the rink in different ways. We're going in 15 minutes before practice starts and we're getting dressed quick and uh, coaches may not have the same amount of time to sit and talk to their players in the rink that they used to, whether it be before practice or after practice. And players may not be enjoying that bonding experience, you know, sitting in the dressing room and talking to each other. And, you know, I know a coach that by make sure that they have plenty of tape for their kids. So that he gets them into a routine where kids come to the rink an hour before games or practices and everybody goes out and retapes to stick together and guys or girls are talking to each other. I, I, we've lost a little bit of that right now with, with what's going on with the COVID scenario. And, but hopefully that our players, our parents, our coaches are doing everything they can in the, in the safest manner to get our kids back to playing again. Some states won't let you play games. Some states will. It's become political. It's become ugly. It's, be, it's become, well, because of this, then that. And I'm not a big if this, then that type of guy. I think that what we all need to do is really step back, look at our situation, and be really thankful that we can get our kids to the rink. It's not under the ideal circumstances. Believe me, I, we all know it. But the fact that we can still play, the fact that there's been a national governing body like USA Hockey that put out an 18-page safe return to play guideline to try to help state governments to get our game going again is really important. And I do think that no matter what we do, we're, we're, we're all kind of in this in our own way, but we're all kind of in this as a big community. And we just need to make sure that we're doing things safe and we're doing things smart but mostly we need to make sure that we're playing because kids need to play. Kids need to compete. Kids need to exercise and kids need to be out. So the more that we can do right now to make hockey a great experience, especially for the younger kids that are first starting, but for those older players that either may be aging out or getting to that scenario where the last of their high level competitive games are coming, make it that much more of, a, of an emphasis of importance and make it that much more of an emphasis of enjoyment so that we can continue to pass the legacy of this great game down from player to player. Absolutely. Awesome. Couldn't have said it better myself. Dave, before we let you go, is there anywhere to find you on social media where our audience can, uh, you know, communicate with you? As my wife likes to say, I pop up on social media so much. It's like a rash. Uh, <laughs> you can, uh, at Twitter, I am at D Starman hockey. And that's where I put out most of my hockey related stuff. Uh, you know, I've used Facebook for, for some different hockey stuff. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I think it's at D Starman one or Dave Starman one on Instagram. I don't put a ton out there. I, I use Instagram more just to, to read the newspaper to tell you the truth, but 
Uh, Twitter is really the thing at D Starman Hockey. I try to put out as much hockey stuff as I can. Uh, I would say this: not everything I put out is anything that I completely agree with, but I like putting things out there for discussion. I like open discussion on different topics. I am somebody who you could change my mind. I mean, my mind has changed a lot on what I used to believe to what I believe now in terms of the game. I'm always into a good conversation. I can agree to disagree and move on, but I can learn something from disagreeing with you. And that to me is one of the beauties of a lot of these open, engaging conversations with, with different people, whether you know them or you don't know them, you can learn from everybody. And if, if social media is used right, it's a great tool to exchange a lot of information and ideas. Absolutely. Well, we didn't. I, I agree with that because, uh, Dave, you've retweeted many uh, articles I've written on the coach's site and some other materials that we've put out here. Um, and I think you may have even retweeted some of our newsletter topics. So thank you again for that. He agrees oh, with my, all of those, though. Hey, listen, we're, we're, <laughs> the bottom line is, right, we're, we, are, we are all in this to grow the game. If the game keeps growing, we all stay in the game and, and the game stays strong and the game stays smooth and, and we all can continue to make contributions to it. We have a passion for the game and you know, there are a lot of guys in this game that are making a lot of money and there are a lot of guys and girls in this game that are not, but the bottom line is our passion level for the game tends to have no direct influence on the economic side of it. So the more that we can all be a part of it and contribute and grow it, the better off we all are because it gives us something to do, something to look forward to and, and something to share with the people that we care about. Absolutely. This has been a lot of fun, Dave. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. Look forward to talking with you guys again. Thank you for tuning into the Hockey IQ podcast. We are Hockey's Arsenal, Greg Rivak and Dan Ducart. Together, we've come together to create a platform and a community to expand our hockey intelligence, hockey IQ, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're very passionate about seeing this game played smarter and better and continue to develop itself uh, to the next level and staying on the cutting edge of things. So you can find us at Hockey's Arsenal on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're also at Hockey'sArsenal.com. Uh, from there, you can find some resources and some options to work with us. We're excited to continue this. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, and share. Uh, you can also join up for our newsletter as well, where we're going to to tackle anything hockey IQ related. So we're excited to have everyone here and continue to build. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at hockey IQ. If you haven't already take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, Hockey'sArsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch a Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.